Thank you. Good morning. I do want to welcome you here again this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, as uh, many are aware, we uh, would have been doing the tabernacle today. Uh, however, uh, due to uh, the COVID concerns, we were not able to go forward with that. So here we are. And what I do want to do is I want we want to keep in the book of Acts. I'm grateful that our brother Josh was here last week, and he was able to keep us in the book of Acts as well. Of course, that's where we've been. Uh, last week, he took us beyond chapter 17, which is where we've come up to. So if you're just kind of processing this again today, or maybe just joining in, we've been doing the book of Acts for many weeks now. And so far, we've covered Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 17. So what we want to do this morning, by God's grace, is to not so much review 17 chapters of material, but what we want to do, by God's grace, is to consider some common themes from the book of Acts. Now, uh, the vast majority of these, in fact, all of these are found in Acts chapter 1 through chapter 17. And I consider them quite important. Um, I'm sure we could come up with, I've got six themes that we're going to consider this morning. I'm sure we could come up with lots more. Um, as you could imagine, many of these themes will carry on throughout the book of Acts. So as we go beyond Acts chapter 17, we're going to see some of the same things uh, carrying through the book. I do trust it will be a help to us as we do consider somewhat of a review, but more so common themes from the book of Acts. Let's just ask the Lord for help again. Our Father, we do come before you now. We seek to quiet our hearts and minds and just ask that you would speak to us through your word, by your spirit. We do look to you this morning. We recognize that unless you build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Lord, it is uh, absolutely true that I want to step out of the way and allow you to speak this morning. We ask that you would speak to us. Help us not only to hear your word and understand your word, but to go forward applying your word to our lives as we are exhorted to do in your word. We ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's 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 start outside of the book of Acts for one verse uh, that I believe ties in very well. Go to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter... And let's look at these two very common verses. Revelation 2, verse 4 and 5. This is where the Lord Jesus is walking throughout the churches. Uh, By the way, this is the church at Ephesus. And this is one of the churches that we've already covered in the book of Acts. The Lord Jesus is here walking throughout the churches, and he says this. He's got different messages to each of the churches, but this is what he says to the church at Ephesus. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you Repent. So I want to reread and just focus on a couple of words there. In the middle of verse 5, repent and do the first works. Repent and do the first works. One of the reasons why we love the book of Acts is because the book of Acts presents to us the first works, so to speak. We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, right? That's what the church is built upon. The Lord Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. As we come to the book of Acts, what we're really doing is, in a real sense, we're coming back to the first works. Why, you might ask, would we put an emphasis on the study of the book of Acts? Maybe you would ask this, maybe not. Maybe you've already got lots of good reasons. But one of the reasons is because the book of Acts is our roots, so to speak. We've heard that said before, right? Get back to your roots. Well, the book of Acts is our roots. And if we're going to come back and do the first works, well, we've got a book in the Bible, specifically the book of Acts. And yes, we go throughout the epistles as well. But especially the book of Acts, we come back and we see the first works. We see the way that the church operated. What does New Testament Christianity look like? What does the New Testament church look like? 
Well, we have the ability to come back to, uh, in that sense, the very spring of the stream, right? If you want the purest flow of water from any given river, you'll go to the, the, the spring, right? You want to get to the source of it. Well, what we have in the book of Acts is exactly that. We have the source, we have the the foundation, so to speak. We have our roots. We can go back here. Um, when I was hired uh, by the government in 2010, I was hired to be a field officer, okay, a field revenue officer, but a field officer is what I was hired to do. And although I didn't really recognize it, uh, it became evident that we field officers weren't doing much field work. Okay, now, mind you, we were working. Don't worry, your tax dollars are being well spent. We were working, but but we weren't doing the field work that we should have been doing. And so several years into my employment, so this is maybe five years ago or so, a new director came in, and he made this massive push to get field workers back into the field. Now, some of us um, were a bit resistant, you know. We get accustomed to doing things a certain way, and we don't like to change. And so it took quite a push. It took a several-year push, and I've got witness to this, but a several-year push to get field workers back out into the field. And although there was resistance to it, oftentimes, the director had something on his side. What he had on his side was the book, so to speak. He could, through his direct words or through indirect words from the management chain, say, listen, this is what the book says you ought to do. I'm sorry, not this book. This is what the book says you ought to do. Here it is, field officer. Now, if you don't want to be a field officer, then you shouldn't have signed up to be a field officer. You know, some would say, well, I can do it from my desk. And he would say, well, sorry, that's not what you were hired to do. You were hired to be in the field. Okay, now this is just an illustration to exemplify the fact that the director, he had the book on his side. He would, in that sense, take us back to our roots and say, this is what you were hired to do. This is what it ought to look like. Now, of course, some of the methods had changed, right? Many of our old revenue officers will tell me how they used to write out things, letters from the IRS on pen and paper. They would write them out, or they would, then years later, they could run prints and all of this. Now we've got uh, faxes and email. Faxes old too, but we've got email. We've got, you know, copy machines. Well, okay, so the methodologies have changed, but he took us back to the book, and he said, this is who you ought to be. This is what you were hired to be. Now get back out into the field. And I want to suggest to you that that's very similar or almost exactly what we have in the book of Acts. Let's go back to the book, so to speak. Okay? There are lots of ideas floating around Christianity as to what New New Testament Christianity should look like. What does the New Testament Christian look like? What does he do? What occupies him? More so, what drives him? What's his motives? There are lots of ideas out in in the world and in Christendom as well as to what the New Testament church looks like. How does the church operate? What drives it? Where does it get its resources? Lots of ideas out there. But we want to come back to the book, so to speak. So one of the reasons why we love the book of Acts is because we can come back and see in a, in a detailed historical narrative, a factual narrative, what the New Testament church looked like. Now, I understand and we recognize we are well aware that we've got electricity and they didn't and we've got padded seats and they didn't. And there are formality type things that have changed. There are external things that change with the times. But the core of Christianity, if that changes, then we no longer have Christianity anymore. If the message of the gospel changes, we no longer have the gospel. If the New Testament church, in its essence of what it is, those who would assemble for the apostles' doctrine and for fellowship and for breaking of bread and prayers, these are the fundamentals, so to speak. And the fundamentals, brothers and sisters, are the fundamentals. These things don't change. 
Now, I know that we have gotten lots of criticism over the years, and, and maybe rightfully so, right? You, whatever that you are, you assembly folk, you, I mean, change is just, nothing ever changes. And okay, understandably, there are probably areas where we ought to move a little bit faster in changing. But when it comes to the fundamentals of New Testament Christianity, the fundamentals of the gospel, those things don't change. So we have the ability to go back and look and say, what did they do? How did they do it? What drove them? What motivated them? And we can say, these are our roots, so to speak. We're going to go back to the book. This is true all throughout the Old Testament, right? The Israelites oftentimes over many years drifted and drifted and drifted far away from the book, far away from the Lord, so to speak. And then there were these times of revival, right? Like Josiah, what stimulated the revival in 2 Kings 22 and 23? I believe those are the chapters with Josiah. Well, they came back and they found the law of God. And they said, look at what's here. This is not what we're doing. This is not who we are. We need to get back to the book. We need to get back to our roots, so to speak. I love the story in Nehemiah chapter 8. This is like 200 years after 2 Kings 22, as I understand. Nehemiah chapter 8, the same thing had happened. Josiah had brought them into a revival, so to speak. They came back to being faithful to God and to his word for a period of time, but then they began to drift and drift and drift. Eventually into captivity, right? The Babylonians came in and they were taken captive and and all of this the Lord had said would happen, right? But Nehemiah chapter 8 is incredible for this and and it pictures so well what these things look like where the people of God begin to see we've been missing the mark. Where are we? Who are we? What are we doing? And you know what the people of God said to Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8? Bring the book. Bring the book. And as Ezra opened up the word of God and just began to read the law of God to them and to give simple explanation, it says this in Nehemiah chapter 8, they read the law of God and they explained what it meant The people were, there was a revival of sorts. They were responsive to the word of God. They were reverent to the word of God. They ended up in in submission and obedience to the word of God. And so this is why we love the book of Acts, because we can come back. Now, I'm not suggesting that we have drifted way away. Of course, that we were thinking as a church, and we also need to think individually. So I don't know where you are individually, Maybe you have drifted way, way, way away, and maybe you need a revival of sorts. I'm not necessarily suggesting that we as an assembly have drifted way away, but I just want to reaffirm, this is why we're doing this. This is why week by week we come, one of the reasons why, I I should say, I'm sure that we could come up with others, but one of the reasons is because we want to keep coming back to it. What does New Testament Christianity look like? What does the New Testament church look like? We don't want, if we ignore the book for years and years, boy, you can end up way out in the weeds. And it seems that many in the beginnings of the Assembly Brethren movement, that's kind of where they were, that many recognized that we are so far from what it was like in the early church, we need to get back to these things. So this is one of the reasons why we love the book of Acts. So, Rather than being irrelevant facts, Acts is an exciting biblical history which instructs our faith and informs our lives. I hope you believe that. That is true. It is not a bunch of irrelevant facts and boring history, but it is actually exciting biblical history. And more importantly than being exciting, it instructs our faith and informs our lives. Those in the book of Acts served the same God. This is incredible. 2,000 years later, we have all of this in common with the early church. We serve the same God. We preach the same gospel. 
we look for that same glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. This is where they were. We have everything in common with them. All of the fundamentals I trust, we hold in common with them. We come back to the book. Saints, I know that we know this. And I don't say this in a criticizing way. But our faith, our hope, our purpose for living is not found in gold or in guns or even in government, right? We have an election coming up. And I understand the importance of it, well aware. But this is not our ultimate hope. This is not our ultimate faith. This is not our ultimate purpose in living, is it? Gold? The stock market? Guns? Our our, our own self-defense? I'm not demeaning those things. It's fine. I've got, you can, each of us have our different persuasions. No problem. But is this what we live for? For government? For political power? I hope not. And when we come to the book of Acts, we find this is not what they lived for. Gold? I mean, they took their stuff and just shared it with one another. They weren't stocking up for, for stormy days to come. And again, I'm not criticizing you if you want to save some money. Okay, no problem. But this was not their hope and faith and purpose in living. They did not rest in the government of their land. That wasn't their peace. They were about the God of the Bible, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and their hope rested in the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus. That's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 1. The, 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 the angel would say, what are you doing standing here gazing? Get out to work. But remember, this same Jesus, he's going to come in like manner as you've seen him go. What a tremendous help this is to us. I trust as we look into the book of Acts. But think about this in summary type fashion. Acts is a historical book which covers, think about this, 30 years. That's it. 30 years of early church history. That's from the ascension of the Lord Jesus in Acts chapter 1 through to uh, very near the end of Paul's life in Acts chapter 28. 30 years of history. Isn't it remarkable? We've only done 17 chapters so far in about 20 years of church history. Isn't it incredible what was accomplished? Think about all the things that we've considered over the last 20 weeks or so. As we've looked into this narrative, in 20 years, again, the book itself covers 30 years, but we've done 1 to 17. We've covered 20 years of church history. Isn't it remarkable what God was able to do in 20 years of history? Now, I understand that Acts is a bit unique. It was the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. It was the beginning of something new, and the Lord did display uh, miraculous displays of power in the book of Acts. We recognize that, and it's a little bit different in that sense, but may it encourage us and stir us and stimulate us. Look at what they accomplish with no social media and no printers and no email and, I mean, no vehicles. They just went on foot and sailboats and they evangelized the world. 20 years we've covered. What a remarkable thing to see what, hear me carefully, the Lord had done. This was not a work of the apostles in that sense, but it was the Lord through the apostles. We're going to emphasize, I trust, we're going to finish with that thought this morning. This is a work of God. And what you and I are involved in this morning is a work of God. We have to come back to the power of the Holy Spirit and the person of Christ. It all comes back to that every time. Coming back to the power of the Holy Spirit. We just sang, right? I appreciated the selection of songs. I didn't pick them, but I appreciate them. Led by the Savior day by day. I mean, day by day, my Savior leads me. Is he leading you? Sometimes we're not, you know. He doesn't direct my path. I just do my own thing. Is he leading you? Do you rest and stand upon the power of the Holy Spirit and love for the person of Christ? That's the motive. 
That's the heart of the matter. Now, we're going to consider things that they did, the externals. They preached and they broke bread and they they prayed and they and all of these things. They did lots of things. They moved. They were busy. But all of that comes back to Acts chapter 1 where we have the person of Jesus Christ and you shall receive power from the Holy Spirit. That's how it all happens. If we're not operating in this mindset, this runs throughout the book of Acts. So, And I know that each week we've really done, I think, overall a very good job of coming back to that. Come back to that. Because, yeah, Paul, he moved in missionary journeys and he took people with him and they had some form of strategy and all of that. But it all comes back to the person of Christ, the love for him and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where we'll land. Okay, so... What made the apostles who they were? We just considered that a little bit. How was so much accomplished in 30 years of church history? We've just thought about that a little bit. By the Lord, through the Lord, for the Lord. But what did they do? And how can we observe what they did? Well, let's observe it. And let's see how can we model after them. So let's run through six things in our closing time here. Um, and... Okay, that could be larger, but it is what it is. The early church was a people steadfastly committed to the practices that the Lord had instituted. Turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. I know this is a very common verse, but this is really, in a sense, the springboard for this point. By the way, yes, the points are in reverse order, so we'll end up... I'm not hiding this, by the way. I've said this many times, but one dear brother who helped teach me how to teach said, don't hide your main point. Don't try to do a magic trick at the end of your message. Just tell them, listen, as we work through these things, we're going to come back to, we're going to dig deeper and deeper in that sense to get down to the power of the Holy Spirit and the person of Christ. That's where we're headed. So you can expect to see power in person as we work up this toward the beginning. But... We consider first practices. The first of these three things that we consider, I should say the first three of these things that we consider are more or less external. They're outward. They're manifestations of something inward. And of course, again, we'll get to that. But what did they do? Well, Acts 2.42, they were steadfast. It says, Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. The early church were a people committed, steadfastly committed to the practices of the early church. And these were the practices of the early church. The apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. You could also add to that, and it's just a few verses before, baptism. Baptism is not to be overlooked. It's not to be demeaned or diminished. Sometimes it may be in our present uh, uh, day and age. But it's a very important thing. They were steadfastly committed to seeing Christian unbelievers born again, baptized and brought into the fellowship to continue in these things. They were an assembling people, okay? I trust we know this, but let's skim through some references. They were a people that assembled, assembled, okay? Starting from the very beginning, Acts 1, 13, when they had entered the upper, I'm sorry, yes. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room. Verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer, in supplication. We read Acts 2.42 where they continued. The idea is together. They were an assembling people steadfastly and the apostles' doctrine and so forth. Acts 2.1, by the way, Listen to this in Acts 2.1. We're just thinking about the early church practices right now and the fact that they were an assembling people. Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord 
in one place. They were an assembling people. Uh, we could go to lots of other references. Acts 4.31. By the way, I should have said this at the beginning. Uh, get your flipping fingers on so that you can flip pages with me as we run through this. Uh, we will skim through various different passages, most of them from Acts 1 to Acts 17. Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. Acts 5 and verse 12, uh, 12b, you could say the latter half of the verse, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Acts 5:42, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I'll give you one more as we move through this. Acts 11, verse 26. And yes, we'll hear lots of pages flipping this morning, Acts eleven twenty six. And when they had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. I don't take it that the church just met for a year, but that the apostles joined in assembling with the church for a year. So what's the point? Well, the point is that the early church was committed steadfastly committed to the practice of assembling, of being together with one another. The word itself, church, ecclesia, the Greek word is used more than 20 times in Acts and specifically in reference to the New Testament church. Here are some definitions of the Greek word ecclesia. A gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place, that is to say, an assembly. An assembly of people convened at the public place of the council for the purpose of deliberating. Any gathering or throng of men assembled by chance and so forth and so on. Finally, an assembly of Christians gathered for worship. So the point is, is that every time we see the term church, we recognize the Greek word ekklesia means literally those who assemble, those who are called out of their homes. Listen, I know it's hard to get out of our homes at times. It's difficult. And we have had over the last several months a good reason, I suppose, to stay in our homes uh, in large part. But this is not the practice of the early church. This is not what we're aiming for, is to be homebound, you know, uh, internet-surfing Christians. The New Testament church gathered, they assembled. It is interesting to note that the Lord often gave special revelation blessing and encouragement when the saints were assembled. You remember in John chapter 20? The early uh, disciples there, this is before they had the Holy Spirit, before they understood the gospel, but here they are together, and the Lord appears to them. The Lord appears to them. But you know what was sad at that point? Somebody missed the meeting. Thomas did. And all he could have is a report from them. Thomas, you missed it. The the Lord was here. Oftentimes, the Lord gives special revelation, blessing and encouragement to the people of God when they assemble. Let's see this in the book of Acts. First of all, we mentioned Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. Peter and John went up together. I'm sorry, that's chapter 3. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, They were all with one accord in one place. Well, well, that would have been a sad meeting to miss, wouldn't it have been? I'm not trying to just heap guilt on you. I know life has its challenges and there are things that keep us from the, the assembly of the people of God at different times and different points in life. We're aware of that. Uh, this is a, a matter of conviction between each of us and the Lord. We day, week by week, right? We have to, to wrestle with these things. I've got priorities and I've got things I've got to take care of and all of that. But the bottom line is that the early church were an assembling people. And God gave special revelation and encouragement when the people of God assembled. Acts 4.31, when they had prayed, they were all together, by the way. You can get that from verse 24. When they had prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Well, that's a meeting that I wouldn't have wanted to miss. The Lord gave a special measure of encouragement and blessing 
to the early church when they came together. We could go on with that. There are other examples of this, such as Acts 12, 12 to 16, Acts 13, 2. Listen, at one point, imagine this. Paul comes out of jail. He has seen the Philippian jailer saved. His whole household gets saved. And they come out of that circumstance into the house of Lydia, and they meet with the brethren that were there. Wow, that's a meeting I wouldn't have wanted to miss. Paul reporting on what God had did. Brothers and sisters, this is incredible. I was in jail. You were praying. The jailer got saved. There was an earthquake. He thought he was going to die. I mean, imagine that meeting. Oftentimes, the Lord gives special encouragement and blessing. I want to ask this. Um, and this is very practical, and uh, I'll duck in case you throw stones at me, okay, or tomatoes or something. But what if we just don't feel like it? What if we just don't feel like getting together with the people of God? Especially what if we just don't feel like it on an ongoing basis? I just have no desire to be amongst a Christian. Some of us, and I've done this, by the way, I've gotten really clever. I've said at times, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be superficial. I don't want to be with you guys, so I'm just going to stay home. You don't want me to be a hypocrite, do you? You're not telling me to come when I don't want to. But I want to kind of turn that around, and let's think about it from another perspective. What if I don't feel like loving my wife? Should I still do it? Yeah, I think you would say. So what if I don't feel like loving my kids on an ongoing basis? Do I still do it? I mean... Is the lack of desire to be with the people of God where the Lord Jesus said, when two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. The lack of desire, is that a sign of spiritual health or of spiritual illness? Well, I think we could reasonably argue from the scriptures that something is wrong. Now, I'm not saying we don't have times where we legitimately don't desire. But here's my mindset. Lord, I know I should be with the people of God. You've called me to it. Hebrews 10, forsake not. It's a clear command. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Lord, this is what you want me to do. This is what the early church did. I'm going to go even though I feel like staying in bed. But Lord... Search my heart. What am I missing? Why don't I desire to be there? I mean, this is the family of God. Listen, we love going to family reunions. Well, I hope we do, unless we have a difficult family. But by and large, a family reunion is a blessed time. It's it's a sad thing when someone misses out on a family gathering. So, Lord, what's going on? Why don't I desire to be with your people? Lord, I'm going to go because this is what you've commanded me to do, but I recognize, Lord, something's off. I don't have any desire to be there. The, 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 the whatever, the bed and the, the, the TV and, and a big breakfast just sounds so much better than being with your people. So let's get to the heart of it. Why don't I feel like being there? So am I saying be superficial or be hypocritical? No. I mean, I suppose you could come and say, brother, I just want you to know I I don't even feel like being here today. I've actually had many tell me that. Hey, I understand. Let's pray about it. Lord, why why am I in this funk? I ought to want to be with your people. They were an assembling people. They were a baptizing people. They were a people that broke bread. They were a people that fellowshiped. They were a people that taught the scriptures. We don't have time to go through each of those in detail, but these were the practices of the early church that they were steadfastly committed to. They were the priority and they had passion to do them. This is the ideal scenario. I recognize not everything in life is always ideal. But the ideal scenario is that my priority is the Lord's priority. And my passion matches the priority. 
It's not always like that. That's when I need to come back to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know why I have no passion to listen to your word being taught, the apostles' doctrine. I don't know why, Lord, I have no joy in being with your people. Something's off here. This is a sign of spiritual illness, not a sign of spiritual health. Lord, search me. Help me, Lord. What am I missing? I'm not going to stop doing it. I'm committed to following your commands. I want to prioritize them, but, oh, Lord, I want the passion to be there as well. That's the ideal scenario. Well, that's what we see in the book of Acts, the people that prioritized the early practices that were instituted, but they also did them passionately. It was a joy to them to be together, a joy to break bread. A joy to see believers baptized, a joy to hear the word of God. We could go on with that quite a bit. We do have quite a responsibility as a New Testament church to feed the flock of God, the apostles' doctrine. It's the responsibility of the people of God to ingest the teaching of the word of God. It's the responsibility of the eldership and the church at large to present food, right? The the, the sheep need somewhere to graze. They need food to eat. This is a heavy responsibility. All of these things, the breaking of bread, the apostles' doctrine, and so forth. Okay, so we're going to run through these very quickly here. As often happens, the clock just works against us. So number two, which is really number five on our list, but number two as we go through it, they were a people that faced persecution. I don't want to belabor this, but we have seen this time and time again. If there's Two points that are manifestly evident that I'm going to present to you today. It's this one and also the preaching of the gospel. Basically, every chapter, they preach the gospel, they're persecuted. They preach the gospel, they're persecuted. We haven't got to preach the gospel yet. But persecution was a regular part of their life. Remember the Lord Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Remember the word that I said to you. Listen to this. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, I know that we don't necessarily endure persecution like the early church did to the same extent, but we do in our different ways and forms endure persecution on a day-to-day basis. We recognize this is par for the course. This is part of being a Christian, Dealing with persecution. It didn't take long to start, right? Acts chapter 4. By Acts chapter 4, the apostles had been arrested and severely threatened. And from there, you could say the rest is history. Basically, every chapter, almost every chapter, more and more persecution. By Acts chapter 5, they weren't just arrested, but they were imprisoned and beaten, by the way. By Acts chapter 6, Stephen was falsely slandered. They didn't just take him and accost him, but they began to come up with false witnesses and they accused him. By Acts chapter 7, we have our first martyr. Stephen is stoned, put to death. But this is what they saw just happen to the Lord Jesus. So it really didn't, there's a sense in which you don't see it, it didn't stop them. I wouldn't say maybe it didn't phase them, but it didn't stop them. Right? We have to obey God rather than man. This is what they said to the religious authorities that were threatening them. It didn't stop them. Persecution is par for the course. But we recognize that persecution is under the sovereign control of God. Listen, this is beautiful. We can rest assured that the Lord is sovereignly in control with whatever it is that we may face today or in days to come. I don't need to reiterate the fact that it's very possible that in days to come we will face a more severe persecution. But the Lord is sovereignly in control. I could give you some references to it. We won't take time to go into that. But the book of Acts makes this clear. But just bear this in mind. The Lord saw to it that one of the greatest persecutors of the early church was born again. All the sovereign hand of God. Here was a man ravaging the church. That's what Acts chapter 8 essentially says, that that a great persecution arose against the church and it was carried out by Saul. But by Acts chapter 9, we have the great persecutor of the church born again. Oh, the sovereign control of God. We can rest in this. Also bear in mind that in Acts chapter 12, we had Herod. 
that Judean king, I believe Judean king, but king over Israel, severely persecuting the people of God. Now, it won't always happen this way, but I hope you remember the story. By the end of Acts chapter 12, Herod is eaten up with worms and dies. The Lord has these things under control. These are not things that the Lord is not aware of. We recognize as well that not only is persecution under the sovereign hand of God, but persecution is really not against us. It's against the Lord. You remember what the Lord said in his confrontation with Saul? Saul was ravaging the people of God, dragging them off to prison. He stood there and, and, and was complicit in the stoning of Stephen. And you remember what the Lord said to him, right? Saul, Saul, Acts chapter 9, why are you persecuting the people? Me. Why are you persecuting me? We, we rest assured in this. Listen to what the disciples say. Let me read this one, and we'll have to move on from this. But Acts 5, listen to this. Acts 5, the disciples, the apostles had been imprisoned. They had been harassed. They'd been threatened. Don't speak in the name of Jesus. They say, what are we going to do? We've got to obey God, not man. That's Acts 5.29. But then this. Gamaliel, not even an apostle, by the way, and we're not certain, I don't think, of whether he became born again, but more than likely he did, says this in Acts 5.38. Now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God... You cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And listen to verse 40. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles, they beat them. And they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, they says they agreed with him. I guess they agreed with him, but said, well, we're going to, you know, beat him anyway. But uh, yeah, we'll beat him and let him go. So they departed from the presence, Acts 5.41, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Persecution is par for the course. We can expect it. There are many positive effects of persecution. Here these people were, and they rejoiced. There was a satisfactory element to persecution. We're not running out looking for it. Hey, beat me, would you? No. But there is a rejoicing that I get to enter into. Paul says, I want to enter into the sufferings of Christ. What a joy. What a privilege. There are lots of different other positive effects that we could look at with persecution. Persecution spreads or scatters the people of God, and that is a good thing in this sense because the Lord was getting the gospel out into the world. Persecution secures eternal rewards and so forth and so on. Lots of positive effects of persecution. Let's run through these last few quickly here. Okay, preaching, I already mentioned this. I'm not going to give you the uh, go through the abundance of references, but the early church were, were committed to the preaching of the gospel. It's just a simple point and I'm just simply convicted. I cannot help but read the book of Acts and not be convicted about opening my mouth for Christ. I know that the arguments made at times, well, you shall be witnesses, not you shall witness. And so some say, well, you're going to be a witness. It's lifestyle. It's not words and all of that. But you simply cannot get around it. Acts 2, 14, 3, 11, 4, 8, 5, 19, every chapter, 6, 9, chapter 7, the whole chapter is Stephen just preaching to a bunch of unbelievers. Open your mouth for the Lord. I know that's easier said than done. It's very difficult for me too. But this is what they did. They were committed to simple and straightforward preaching of the gospel. It doesn't have to be cute. It doesn't have to be clever per se, but they simply preached Jesus time and time again. Now, I do recognize that Paul especially had a vast understanding, so did Peter, of the Old Testament. And they reasoned with them from the scriptures. So let that be a challenge to us to know the word of God. But they 
preach the gospel. The Greek verb for preach the gospel, uh, euangelizo, I'm probably off on that pronunciation. It occurs more in this book than in any other in the New Testament. About a third of the book of Acts consists of speeches, and most of these are speeches of Peter or Paul proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the salvation accomplished in Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit extends to the ends of the earth through the preaching of the gospel. Okay, we'll just move on from that, but there's some really remarkable things that are found there. Um, look at one reference, sorry. Acts 5, verse 19. Here they are in prison. Acts five nineteen. Here they are in prison. At night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said to them, go home, you've had a hard day, relax a little bit and, 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 and rest and recuperate. Is that what it says? They're in prison. An angel of the Lord opens the prison doors and says, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Isn't that remarkable? What a call and what a privilege we get to proclaim the gospel to the world. Okay, running through this now. So number uh, four, number three up here, but number four as we go through them, persuasion. I just want to say about this, the, 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 and again, we're working from more external things to the internal, internal, internal. Now we're thinking about the internal of these apostles, of these early church Christians. They were fully persuaded that the scriptures were the word of God. Fully persuaded. This is so critical. Listen, lots of times, uh, you know, like we're raising kids, right? And we'd like to just see them come along and just kind of go with the flow. And, you know, kids, this is good for you and all of this. But the reality is, I've got to say to them, kids, this is the message. Are you fully persuaded or are you not? Because if you're not fully persuaded, I mean, you can come and make me happy. And right now they have no choice because they don't drive. But as they grow older, right, you can come and, 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 well, you know, I could see some of my kids. They just love me so much. They'll probably will stick around for a while just because they love me. But I've got to say to them, this is the message. Do you really believe it? I mean, we'll never get to a passionate preaching of the gospel if we half-heartedly believe the message, if we're not fully persuaded that this is the word of God, and I don't have time to go through it, but I trust we can think of passages as we've gone through this from Acts 1 to 17, time and time again, quoting from the Old Testament scriptures, men, can't you see? This is the fulfillment of the word of God. Can't you see that the, 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 this is this is God's plan? Are you, Paul would reason with them to see them persuaded. A work of the Spirit of God in the heart, apart from an understanding and affirmation in the mind, is a foreign concept in scriptures. A work of the Spirit of God in the heart, apart from an understanding and affirmation in the mind, is a foreign concept. Read the message. What do you think about the Word of God? Are you fully persuaded that this is the word of God? I've got to say this to my kids. Listen, I love you and I want you to just come along and go with the flow and I don't want you to do drugs and I want you to come to the meetings and all of that. But there's something beyond that. Do you really believe the message? Brothers and sisters, this is real. Like we're telling the world a message that is a little wild, but it's so true and it makes sense and it's, the message of God's grace and how Christ died and he was buried and rose again and that now I have life in him, forgiveness of sins. Do you believe the message? They were fully persuaded of the scriptures, fully persuaded. Now, getting even deeper within them, go back to Acts chapter one as we close. This is the last two and I'll just put both of these up there because I already told you this is where we were going. None of this happens. The, the, the steadfast practice of the early church, the, the, the standing in the face of persecution, the bold proclamation of the gospel, none of that happens if we don't get back to these first two. This is where it all began. The power 
of the Spirit of God. Acts 1 verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. Jesus had begun to do and to teach, but he hadn't failed in his mission by any stretch, but there is also a real sense in which the job wasn't done. He began a job, and then he's going to leave it to the apostles. He leaves it to you and I. I don't know about you, but I'm going, Lord, if this is your work, and now you've given it to me, like I don't know what to do. I mean, who am I? But the Lord would say in a real sense, that that's, that's exactly the point. This is my work through you. It's going to be the Spirit of God in you. Brothers and sisters, I know that this is, in a sense, a bit of an elusive concept. It's difficult to wrap our minds around. But the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is critical. Our daily dependence upon Him. We can run so busy. And, 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 and in, in a sense, yes, Lord, I want to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work. But an ongoing dependence upon the Spirit of God. Listen to this uh, statement as we bring this to a close. The indwelling life of Christ is released in our daily life experience when we live as he did by faith. Think of that verse. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The indwelling life of Christ is released in our daily experience when we live as he did, by faith. That is with total dependency upon the God who lives in us. But a life of total dependency is an elusive concept for people to grasp. The writer says, The best explanation I have heard has been expressed by this particular brother in what he calls the threefold interlock. And I understand we could probably add to this or maybe even revise it, but this is helpful. A life of faith is our love for God resulting in a dependency upon God resulting in obedience to God. A life of faith is our love for God, resulting in a dependency upon God, resulting in obedience to God. This pattern, by the way, is clearly seen in the life of the Lord Jesus. We know this, right? The Lord Jesus lived this out. Love for the Father. I can do nothing of myself, the Lord Jesus would say. Total dependency upon the Father and ongoing obedience. You see, we can hammer one another why aren't you doing? Why aren't you doing? Why aren't you doing? But if it's not a work of God by the Spirit of God because of the love of God, we're really beating a drum that's going to get us nowhere. But a life of faith, a life in dependence upon the power of the Spirit of God and love for the Son of God. If I've got no love for Him, where am I? They were motivated. This is what moved them. As we continue to go through the book of Acts, I trust that we'll see this time and time again. May we not forget they didn't just preach. They didn't just practice, but they had a passion for the Lord himself, love for the Lord, empowered by the indwelling spirit of God. Compelled, you could say, by the love of God. The love of Christ compels us and indwelt by the spirit of God. This is the way that so much was accomplished in the early church. We look to him. Our Father, we thank you. As we've come today, gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we do today, we trust, is of you, by you, and for you. Help us, O Lord, to wrestle with these things and to know what it is to live a life of faith, a life empowered by your Spirit, a life of love for you. For you, O God, have so loved the world, you've loved me. And in turn, we respond in, in heartfelt love for you. Help us, O Lord. We know that these things wane at times, Help us to be revived and renewed in our commitment to you, to love you, to seek you, to follow you, to depend wholly upon you as we go about serving you in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.